Thanks very much. Thank you, Anna. And thank you to Anna and Louisa for inviting me um, to speak. Um, this paper, as Anna said, is part of my book project. And the, the, the chapter that I'm going to be uh, talking from, I wrote it um, quite a while ago, actually, um, but I did want to present it to this group because I feel it has its origins in Birkbeck somehow. Um, and the origins were years and years ago, um, Sally ran a, a series went on for a whole year I think which Ian was involved in as well and that's how I got to know Ian on radicalism and um, it was a very inspiring series of seminars through the 19th century seminar um, and introduced me to a range of works and a range of themes um, and um, which some of which I've explored further in my work but it also introduced me to the novel of Thomas Martin Wheeler um, that Ian has edited in this um, volume, a new edition nice and shiny um, <laughs> and which is, a, a, is an amazing novel I thought um, and um, I've always wanted to write about it so the project that I've been working on about migrancy and mobility seemed to be the context in which I could um, write about it. So I'm going to say just a few words about the larger project and then I'm going to talk about Thomas Martin Wheeler. So the project, the book project that I'm working on, um, I have some slides actually, <laughs> so I'll stand up here, um, is, um, as Anna said, is about my migration and mobility in the 19th century. Um, whoops. Ah. Uh, I lost a slide. Why have I lost a slide? Oh well, I think I can do without it. But that's a shame. Sorry about that, it's a mystery. Um, <laughs> the, I had a chapter outline of the book, which I would explain to you what, the book, what is contained in the book. So it's about migration and mobility in the 19th century, a period which historians and global historians in particular have agreed saw unprecedented transnational movement globally, not just from Britain, but across the world. People were moving around um, in a way that they hadn't ever um, before. But it was a period in which British literature seems to um, be drawn um, to an insistent kind of localism. So it was in that paradox between the sort of the dramatic kinds of demographic changes that are taking place, but also a literature that seems, on the face of it, to be interested in um, in, in the particularities of local context. That I wanted to um, think about what's what's going on there. So I was asking the question, I suppose, what happens to mobility? and migration. So if my slide with my chapter outlines was there, which puzzles me that it's not there, so I'm hoping that the others are going to be okay, um, um, you would see that the, the book is divided into three sections and chronologically. Uh, the first section um, has four chapters which deal with questions about, um, well, well, I call it experiments in... Um, Experiments. Actually, I can't remember what I could call it without my slide. But um, experiments in colonialism and fiction in the early decades of the 19th century, so the 20s and 30s primarily. And what I've tried to do is trace the ways in which um, people kind of experiment with ideas of colonisation, but alongside um, various experiments that are happening in fictional form. Um, um, during that period where things are very much in flux, I think, in the 20s and 30s. So publishing itself is in flux and the technologies of print and um, the dissemination of print are very much um, in flux. And then in the, um, the second section of the book, um, I talk about the novel around 1850 um, and I try to talk about three different kinds of the novel um, which, um, which seem to me very powerful examples of the novel um, in this, around, at this juncture where I think the novel has sort of come to a kind of new maturity um, so, and that, that the kinds of novels I'm interested in are ones that have a sort of spatial organisational um, 
theme. So um, one chapter is about the provincial novel and it's primarily about Charlotte Bronte's Villette. The second chapter is this chapter um, about the, um, the Chartist novel in which a new kind of future or utopian place is imagined. And the third kind of novel are called the national novel. And Bleak House is my example of that, whereas Dickens's um, Condition of England um, novel. And then the third section of the book is about um, George Eliot primarily, and it's about what happens to um, migration and the theme of migration in the late novels of um, George Eliot. And I'm principally interested there in um, Daniel Durando and thinking about the way in which that novel plays around with different ideas of imperialism, actually. So that's the kind of the, the, the arc of the book, if you like. That there are two planks of my argument. And the first is that I'm trying to think about the ways you're arguing that print in the 19th century is a technology of transport. And I think it's as important for moving, as important as a technology of moving people as um, some more obvious technologies of transport, like ships and um, trains are, for instance. And I'm trying to think about fiction as part of a sort of subcategory within a broader category of print as a technology of transport. And the second plank of the argument is that over the period, um, what emerges and what is, has emerged by the 1860s and 70s is what I'm calling a kind of grammar of mobility, I suppose, uh, which I think by the 60s and 70s infuses all kinds of representation. And this has been very much driven by the novel, I think, but it says... Um, it, it's as insistently there um, in other kinds of representation and in other discourses as well, and particularly in politics. So that's the overall arc of my book. Um, and now I'm going to talk about um, Thomas Martin Wheeler, um, Sunshine and Shadow, which comes in the middle of the book. So this paper is about Thomas Martin Wheeler's fine picaresque novel, Sunshine and Shadow, which was published in the Chartist newspaper, The Northern Star, between March 1849 and January 1850. So Chartism, as you all know, I don't really need to say this, was the working class radical movement for parliamentary reform that emerged in the early 1830s following the first Reform Act of 1832 which had ignored the claims of working class to political representation, and it continued until 1848. A national struggle for universal male suffrage, it was highly dependent on print media, and especially the newspaper The Northern Star. The Star had been, an import had been important in creating this national movement by reprinting and diffusing on a wider scale information about local activities extracted from provincial newspapers. So the Chartists presented two petitions to Parliament in 1839 and 42, each of which was unsuccessful, after which the focus of the movement shifted to revolutionary movements in continental Europe and to land nationalisation schemes at home, especially a cause known as the Chartist Land Plan. So there was a final rally to reform British Parliament in April 1848, a mass demonstration in London, spurred on by the revolutions that were taking place in Europe, but this too was unsuccessful in its immediate aims. So when Sunshine and Shadow was published a year later in 1849, Chartism, in its early formation at least, was pretty much in decline and the focus of radical activity in Britain had turned outwards to, to Europe and um, Margot Finn's book on after Chartism I think is particularly good in talking about this um, phase. So Sunshine and Shadow tells the story of a fictional character called Arthur Morton, an orphan who falls on hard times and becomes a Chartist. It also tells a history of Chartism, and it includes fictionalised accounts of the major events and figures of the Chartist struggle up to April 1848, and the trial and subsequent imprisonment and transportation of the most prominent Chartist leaders. For Wheeler's first biographer, William Stevens, writing in the year of Wheeler's death, Morton's life was based on Wheeler's own. Yet this overlooks the fact that Arthur Morton travels much further than Wheeler ever did. 
During the course of the novel, Arthur drifts from London to Birmingham to Liverpool, to the West Indies, to America, where he tours the country, and then comes back to Manchester, London, and finally goes to Italy as a political exile, an emigre, if not an emigrant, having left his wife and child at home in London to, quote, roam in exile in a foreign land, listening in the far distance to the melody of freedom, breathing among the green hills and the lovely valleys of his native land. At its ending, therefore, there's no formal settlement for Arthur or anyone, only a hope for a democratic future in a future place, and this cannot be represented as it has not yet been achieved. This is a profoundly unsettled novel, therefore, and one which purposefully resists all forms of closure. So there's much else about the novel that defies our expectations. Its style is dogmatic, preachy, and overly melodramatic. Its characters aren't rounded and they don't develop. The plot based on such recent history is inconclusive and unfinished, and much of the novel is written in the future tense rather than the past tense of the realist novel. Whereas poetry offered Chartist a mode of expression with a radical legacy and a direct link to oral forms of communitarian involvement, such as song, the novel, in contrast, seemed to be in its very formation a bourgeois mode, made to express the achievements of individuals rather than of communities. Even so, Mike Sanders speculates that Sunshine and Shadow, published in 1849, marks a shift in emphasis among Chartists from poetry to fiction. And within that in mind, I want to explore how this novel seeks to occupy a space of radicalism at this transitional moment in the history of Chartism. I'm going to suggest that the novel's innovation derives from its profoundly ambivalent relationship to place. If the novel as a genre conventionally works to provide its readers with an imagined place to live in, the dilemma for Wheeler is that there is no satisfactory place, at least not yet, nor in the class-ridden, impoverished and what he calls artificial conditions of industrial Britain. In understanding this, I suggest we understand both the novel's political and its aesthetic principles. And to do this, we need to consider the novel not abstracted in its 20th century edition, but rather in its own place, that is to say, embedded in the pages of the Northern Star. Thus, in addition to thinking about inhabited spaces and imagined or imaginary spaces, I also want to think about the space of the page. So until 1999, when Ian um, produced his invaluable edition of Sunshine and Shadow, the novel was only to be read in the ephemeral context of the newspaper, and this would have provoked a very particular kind of reading practice. Not only would the newspaper have placed temporal constraints on the reader, the instalments of the novel would have shared the physical lifespan of the newspaper, it would also have made spatial demands on readers, provoking them to look laterally across the page to read the novel alongside other articles that lay adjacent to it. In 1849, with most of the leaders of the movement either in prison or deported, and comparatively little political activity at home to report, two issues seem to dominate the newspaper, and both of them are to do with place. The first is emigration, there is talk of it everywhere, and plenty of evidence of the sheer number of people moving to the colonies at this time. And second, land nationalisation, and specifically the Chartist land plan. So in this paper, I explore the way in which the novel operates within the discursive and print contexts that these issues can present. The paper is divided into three sections. In the first, I look at the newspaper itself to think about how the newspaper page, its layout, contributes to the way in which the novel would have been read. In the second, I turn to Wheeler's writing about the land plan, and in the final section, I return to Sunshine and Shadow and consider the way in which writing about place provides an idiom in which Wheeler imagines a democratic future. So, I'm hoping this will be the... This is the right slide, but I'm suspicious that something's gone madly wrong with it. Anyway, it's very puzzling. Anyway, this, will, this is it. So this is um, the, the, beneath the, um, the final instalment of Sunshine and Shadow, which is this, um, on page 
three of the Northern Star um, for um, the 5th of January 1850. Beneath um, the, the instalment of the novel are published two letters decrying current practices of emigration to um, Australia. So here is the, so they are, um, well, you, the, in the second column from this side, the right, so you can see them there. So the layout of the page is something that I'm just hoping I've got the right slides because I've marked them all up. Anyway, um, the first of these articles um, is about female emigrant ships, and it's called Female Emigrant Ships, and it's an article that's reprinted from the Times. And it reports on the moral mayhem caused by a philanthropic scheme for the emigration of distressed needlewomen. Perceiving from your paper that a large sum has been lately raised in aid of female emigration, writes A.M. of London, the author, I take it for granted that any information to throw light on their future destiny will be valued by those on whom the moral and general superintendence of this emigration will devolve. Testimony provided by an eyewitness on an emigrant ship bound for New South Wales provides bleak reading. Um, AM says, there were shocking scenes on board, continued attempts at mutiny, only put down by the strong arm and threats of the pistol, while the coarse indecency of the women is most revolting. Indiscriminate social mixing, um, we're told, the lowest prostitutes mixed with a few poor innocent girls, broken down me mechanics, chartists, late of York Castle prison, and young women and men just married going out on pure speculation. But also there's gambling and sexual relations openly taking place between the crew and women passengers. So travelling in these conditions makes female emigration a very hazardous experiment. So much for the journey. On the arrival, on arrival, the emigrant faces a new set of difficulties. And this is the subject of the second letter, um, which is headed um, Emigration, um, written by a Northern Star reader called Jane Sweet, who reveals that when they come here, um, to Australia that is, there is nothing for them to turn their hands to. And I can assure you that at the present time, there are hundreds of men walking about here totally unable to find employment a further hazard for the hapless needlewomen. These are the observations of Sweet's friends, a recent emigrant to Australia who wants to correct the false representations which deliberately delude the poor people of England. I am quite favourable to emigration, confides Sweet in this letter. And he goes on, providing the right persons were sent, viz, all the parsons, because they're not only useless but very mischievous, or the lawyers, because their trade is to mystify that which ought to be clear and indisputable. Three quarters of the doctors might accompany them, and as for the aristocracy, with very few exceptions, their services could easily be disposed with. But for working men to leave the land of their birth and tear asunder all early associations, that I can hardly agree with. So the sudden shift in emotional register from a joke to a melancholic seriousness, which is so typical of radical journalism in this period, underscores a different point to that made in the previous letter. Not the moral panic provoked by social deracination, but a concern for the affected consequences of leaving the land of one's birth, the violation felt by the migrants of being uprooted. The general message, though, is one and the same. Emigration, which is happening at an accelerated pace, is a bad thing and yet another affront to the working people of England. In its representations, it often merges with penal transportation, with threat of which hangs over chartist activists throughout the period, um, as we shall see. And so those two things seem to slip into each other quite often. Accounts of the pitfalls of emigration are distributed across the paper in editorials on the export of surplus labour, in news reports on lawlessness in new settlements, in poems about emigrant shipwrecks, for instance, in book reviews and in anecdotes and the comic bon mot that are copied from other papers which appear in the column entitled Varieties. Um, um, 
here's the column, that's the column that is varieties in this particular um, newspaper, which you can see, um, such as the following um, uh, extract, which actually isn't from this edition, but it's um, um, in uh, an earlier one, which is where chapter three of the novel occurs. Um, there is a bon mot that says, every man like Gulliver in Lilliput is fastened to some spot of earth by the thousand small threads which habit and association are con continually stealing over him. Of these, perhaps, one of the strongest here alluded to when the Canadian Indians were once solicited to emigrate. What, they replied, what shall we say to the bones of our fathers? Arise and go with us into a foreign land. However expressed, the point is unequivocal. To move or not to move is always a political issue, and the best response in the Northern Star is don't move, stay put. Now, the image of Gulliver, a migrant himself, pinned to the ground by a troop of tiny Lilliputians, may not be an obvious emblem of native belonging. Nor without its problems is the reference to the forced removal of Canadian Indians, displaced by British emigrants. The jokiness of the Varieties column deflected reflection on these finer points of ethics and reason, but it nevertheless underlies the complexity surrounding the question of mobility, for alongside this strident anti-emigration polemic, the paper also expressed views that are not only tolerant of emigration and accept emigration as an unavoidable feature of everyday life for millions of working people, but they also appeared actively to encourage it. As Gregory Vargo has pointed out, the Northern Star wrote sympathetically about the activities of emigrants and publicised opportunities that emigration presented for working class people. It advertised emigration pamphlets, medical commodities for emigrants, such as PARS life pills for persons going abroad, and even passages on board emigrant ships to America, Australia and elsewhere, such as um, this one that appeared in one edition of the Northern Star. It also promoted socialist and cooperative emigration schemes, uh, many of which were inspired by Owen and Fourier, the details of which circulated widely in pamphlets and journals and were espoused at enthusiastically attended public meetings throughout the 1840s. Of these, the most colourful was that of John Adolphus Etzler, a German emigre and scientist, who in 1843 came to Britain by way of America to launch his Tropical Emigration Society. Eckler's proposal was to diminish the necessity for human labour by harnessing the power of nature with machines which he had invented and patented. These machines, um, such as windmills and wave machines, which leashed the na natural energy of the elements rather than um, relying on artificial um, um, uh, sources of energy from mining, mining coal um, and burning carbon, um, that these machines would require minimal human supervision and release, would release people for a life of leisure and cultural inquiry. So Etzler's ideas were laid out in a series of pamphlets and no less than two periodicals which were published by a socialist publisher based in Ham in Surrey and were promoted in the radical press, including in the Northern Star. Hundreds of British people bought shares in Etzler's society and many of them embarked on an ill-fated voyage to Venezuela where Etzler had purchased 70,000 acres of land believing that the fecundity of tropical vegetation provided the best resources for his technological utopia. Unfortunately, he had not considered the hazards of travel and disease, and moreover, his me mechanical inventions, perhaps unsurprisingly, proved unequal to their tasks, and the scheme ended in disaster, with most of its people dead or stranded in the West Indies. During the mid-1840s, though, radical emigration schemes of this kind offered a solution to political stagnation at home, especially following the failures of the 1839 and 1842 petitions. Yet coincident with this heightened engagement with foreign colonisation schemes, there's also a rise, in land um, of in a rise of interest in land reform. And this is clearly evident in the Northern Star. So from around 1843, the paper's owner, the popular Chartist leader Fergus O'Connor, became actively involved in Back to the Land on small farming schemes, and the rhetoric of popular agrarianism began to dominate its columns. 
This had always been an important component of Charter's political discourse and drew on the legacy of Spencean radicalism, active in London from the 1780s, and other popular agrarian democrats, including Cobbett, whose rural rights continued to be influential. As Anne Janowitz has shown, too, radical agrarianism supplied the dominant idiom of Chartist poetry. Yet from 1843, the political valence of the people's land in the Northern Star became much stronger than in the earlier years of Chartism. In November 1845, at the Chartist National Convention, O'Connor launched his Chartist Cooperative Land Company, a joint stock company later to become the Chartist Land Company. And from then on, the Northern Star became an integral means of recording, publicising and furthering the company's activities. Indeed, the success of the company in attracting uh, small investors in the late 1840s, some 70,000 weekly subscribers in 1847, this may also have contributed to a boost in the circulation, circulation figures of the star, which had suffered a decline in sales between 1843 and 1847. And uh, Jim Mussel writes about this really um, helpfully on the, um, the website, the NISC. Um, website. I've got it wrong, but anyway, whatever. The land plan was not by any means the only topic covered by this, the Northern Star. Historians of Chartism agreed that the key to the newspaper's success was its eclectic editorial policy and inclusion of a broad range of radical voices and causes by techniques of cutting and pasting items from provincial, foreign, provincial and foreign newspapers. Nor was the land plan the only agrarian scheme to receive attention. Yet with its massive national ambitions, the land plan was an increasingly dominant strand of its concerns in the mid and late 1840s. So both home and foreign colonisation persist alongside each other as contrary causes in the Northern Star, and they provide a confusing backdrop to Thomas Martin Wheeler's picaresque novel Sunshine and Shadow. The central character, Arthur Morton's exhausting itinerary that I outlined earlier, runs alongside the discussions of both emigration and of allotments in the Northern Star. In the final episode of Sunshine and Shadow, um, uh, okay, so that's the final episode on the page, um, which is important to what I want to say. Um, in the final episode of Sunshine and Shadow, on the very same page as the two emigration letters cited above, Arthur takes leave of his wife and child in London. As he departs for Italy as a political exile, he looks back to England and forward in time to an imagined democratic future. As noted earlier, even in this closing chapter, the novel imagines a place that is anything but stable and reflects the emphasis throughout the narrative on imagining future spaces to which the characters and narrator aspire rather than known and inhabited ones. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about how the page works. So the theme of exile in this episode is amplified by the epigraph to the chapter, which is a long extract of 50 lines um, the, the, the top of the, um, of the extract from Buller Lytton's 1831 poem, The Siamese Twins, which gives a sentimental account of a married couple parting. Oh, while in distant lands I toil and exile breathing freedom sighs, thy thoughts like dew shall bless the soil, thy love like stars smile from the sky, says. Um, it is also reinforced by other items on the same page. The emigration letters already discussed, which are here, um, but also notably an account of the injustice perpetrated against William Cuffey, the black Chartist leader who had been transported to um, Tasmania for his part in the 1848 demonstrations. So there's a lot about Cuffey uh, that is in those two columns. Um, Cafe, who was the son of an immigrant himself, who appears as a character in an early episode of Sunshine and Shadows, had been convicted for sedition, and in the novel, Arthur goes to Italy to avoid a similar fate. So Arthur's escape highlights Cafe's cause. So the two characters, so the, I think there's quite an important link that's being made um, there, very locally on that page. 
So in line with the Northern Star's practice of reprinting judiciously selected extracts from other publications, the item on Café had been taken from George Holyoke's magazine, The Reasoner. It was followed by a further extract from the same source, a note from a correspondent named C. Dent, and this was a notice about, or rather an advert for, a, quote, mock heroic poem with six or eight coloured plates on the subject of Café, printed in quarto and sold privately at the price of one guinea, which the author indicates with a heavy wink had probably been presented to the Queen. Um, he's piling on the double negatives. He says, he will not say that a copy handsomely got up was not presented to an illustrious personage for her entertainment. As so frequently in the star, therefore, this is a tale of print begetting print, of reprinting, stimulating and publicising printed matter, a self-generating vortex of letters and images treading a precarious line between truth and fiction, legality and treason. Um, and just as a side note, one of the things that the star does to keep its kind of fortunes up in this period is print a, a gallery of portraits of chartist heroes, and Café was one of them, and this is his portrait. And so there's the prison window behind him. I think that's quite nice. So this was a kind of a special um, uh, edition of um, Northern Star. So at the centre of this process of, uh, of pub pub publicity feeding publicity, publication feeding publication, at the centre of this are figures of exile, displacement and migration. There's nothing new or idiosyncratic about this, and neither the self-generating profusion of printed text, which is a strong feature of 19th century print culture across the political spectrum, and the very key to the Northern Star's modus operandi. Nor was, it the fact, nor was the fact that mobility or moving, migration or exile was its usual, was, it, was its subject, was, neither was that unusual either. Throughout my study, I observe instances in which migration and print exist in a symbiotic relationship to each other, stimulating, enabling and enhancing each other. In this respect, therefore, the Chartist press is in line with the general tendencies of the time. Yet even so, its messages about movement are even more intense and insistent than in the mainstream press, even more freighted with political meanings and with meanings that are even more intensely conflicted. So Sunshine and Shadow is embedded in a fraught spatial matrix in which people's relationships to land and environments are both highly politicised and extremely precarious. Two recent readings of the novel have gone some way to recognising this. One by Jude Peace um, her, in her book British Settler Emigration in Print um, that came out last year. Um, Peace reads Sunshine and Shadow as an anti-emigration text. And then another study by Chris Vandenbosch, uh, a book called Reform Acts, Chartism, Social Agency and the Victorian Novel, which is a little bit older than um, the, the other book. Um, but Vandenbosch reads the novel in terms of the land plan. It's a problem that both readings face is that the novel is ostensibly neither about emigration, for or against it, nor about the land plan. As Vandenbosch properly notes, the land plan is mentioned in only two chapters of the novel as a project supplementary to the main business, business of Chartism. Rather than seeing the novel as dealing with or representing one or other of these social movements, therefore, um, uh, I want to suggest alternatively that they and their attendant spatial attitudes are drawn into the novel in more complicated, often piecemeal ways, and often through what we might call the technology of the page. Thus, in the example I've presented, in which so many references to exile are choreographed across a single page, the novel participates in and enhances a political message, here the call to campaign for the repatriation of Café. Each of the episodes of Sunshine and Shadow play a role in this larger process of meaning-making, drawing on its adjacent columns, filtering information and emphasising and interpreting, interpreting views and attitudes. In this way, the novel is embedded in and speaks to contemporary concerns, and from this I suggest it derives its own distinctive style of representation. And I'm going to come back to that in section three, but now I'm passing on to my second section, which is about the land plan. So when Wheeler contributed Sunshine and Shadow to the Northern Star, he already had a long association with that newspaper, with Chartism, and indeed with the land plan. 
He had met O'Connor in the 1830s and become a London correspondent for the newspaper, as well as a local party organiser, and he was appointed secretary to the National Charter Association. He shared O'Connor's interest in the agrarian movement as a solution to the problems of industrialisation, and he collaborated with him on the authorship of a successful manual for industrial workers, um, intending to turn to the land. Uh, this is um, this, a practical work of the management of small farms, a sizeable volume that was reprinted four times in the first half of the 1840s. When the Chartist Land Company was established, Wheeler was appointed as secretary and awarded in gratitude an allotment of his own in O'Connorville, the first of the Chartist colonies, and it was there that he wrote Sunshine and Shadow. The land plan was a scheme to locate working people in the countryside on small plots of land of their own, which they could inhabit and cultivate. It was proposed as a way of resisting the capitalist monopolisation of the land and the consequences of this, the displacement of agricultural labourers over specialisation of industrial labour and insecurity of jobs in a market subject to the forces of global competition. In short, it aimed to reverse the flow of people from country to city, from agriculture to industry, and to restore to them security of employment and habitation during a period of extreme economic depression. It was also intended to obviate the necessity of foreign emigration. The scheme operated by encouraging working people to become small investors so as to provide funds to purchase estates that would then be divided into small lots of two, three or four acres. The investors would then be entered into a lottery, the winners receiving a plot of land, a newly constructed cottage and funds to help them establish their own small holding. The aim was eventually to settle every investor and O'Connor calculated that this would happen with a certain number of years. I think it was 15, but I'm not sure that that's correct. In order to hasten this, he also set up a bank to speed the capitalisation of the project, as well as to, manage, to help to manage the sheer numbers of very small payments. At its peak, there were 70,000 weekly subscriptions, 70,000 small amounts of money coming in. The scheme mirrored many other allotment schemes at the time, except in one aspect, and that was its enormous scale. Backed by the infrastructure of the Northern Star and the Chartist movement, the land plan used their networks of communication and collaboration to become a national scheme. With this resource behind it, it's aimed to resettle a significant proportion of the British labouring population in new Chartist colonies seemed like a realistic proposition. This was a plan in which size mattered. The small, we might say the human dimension of the plots of land was key to both its operation and its politics. In addition to needing the investment opportunities that small plots presented to provide capital for the scheme, O'Connor and Wheeler expressed an almost theological belief in the virtue of small plots. In the management of farms, they write that in his own little holding, he, the worker, recognises the miniature of nature. I think that's a really nice um, phrase, the miniature of nature is something that they, they will find. And it's this they hold that would teach the true value of labour and of land and serve to counter the artificial economy of industrialism which drives men to accept lower and lower wages and the language of the true and the false of nature versus industry and of the, um, the true and the artificial is insistent throughout. Distinct from most aspects of Chartist activity, the land plan was not devised as a means of achieving enfranchisement. Rather, it was a scheme for educating and for sustaining working class communities. And in that sense, it was supplementary to the cause. Or to adapt a spatial term, we might say it was a kind of annex. Um, and uh, that the, the idea of the small, the small plot is part of the iconography of the land plan, I think. And this um, woodcut that was published in the Northern Star, I think, captures that sense of the kind of the, 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 rom the pastoral romance of the small plot. But if small plots were necessary for sustenance, on the other side of the size spectrum, its magnitude was essential for its efficacy. 
Only by drawing together so many small investors could the scheme hope to accumulate a large enough fund to achieve its ends of purchasing and developing land sufficient to settle all its members. But the scope of its ambition was also its downfall. For a start, it meant that the settlement of members had to be staggered um, over a, a large number of years in order to raise sufficient funds to purchase and develop land. And O'Connor vastly underestimated the time required to do this, so that by the time the company was closed down by Act of Parliament, in fact, just three years later, the vast majority of, uh, of subscribers were still unhoused and, in fact, uh, lost most of their um, investment. The technical problems of managing such an ambitious uh, programme um, was part of the problem here. So to manage the distribution of plots over time, he introduced a lottery. So you had to, there was a raffle, basically. And so if you were lucky and you won the raffle, you got a plot of land. And if you didn't, you were put back in the raffle and had to, to wait. But having this lottery as part of the... Uh, as part of the kind of the, the way it worked, meant that O'Connor was unable to register the company as a friendly society as he'd initially intended to, and it created insurmountable legal problems for any kind of official registration. The outcome was a huge bureaucratic mess, and by May 1848, after the establishment of a number of colonies, the company was the subject of a special parliamentary select committee and by 1851 was being closed down by government instruction. So in the early 1850s, Wheeler sold his allotment while his neighbours and fellow colonists were clambering to emigrate abroad. In the optimistic months in early 1848, however, Wheeler went on a walking tour of the Chartist colonies and he contributed three topographical essays to the Northern Star. In these, he describes the landscape that he encounters, the people he meets, and thriving communities he finds in the newly built Chartist villages. Inevitably, the tour required him to traverse the places in between the new colonies, and he invokes a landscape of sharp contrast between what he calls adopting the terminology of the discoveries, the old and the new world. Here, he sees, here we see him combine, on the one hand, a language of agrarianism, a Cobbett-like critique of past land management to describe the old world, and on the other hand, a language drawn from emigration, a language of investment, speculative building, and colonisation of new land in which to evoke the future. So in the old world, he sees inscribed in the landscape the accreted history of encroachment and dispossession stretching back over centuries to Saxon times. This is a landscape etched with the effects of agrarian capitalism, the accumulation of land by industrialists and aristocrats, and the vanishing of small farms, freeholds, and family members. The bulk of the population, he writes, are deterior deteriorated and dispersed for the benefit of the acquisitive few. Echoes of Cobbett and his analysis of the politics of exclusion are clearly to be heard, and Cobbett is also name-checked, associated with a dying generation. He meets, um, or he, he encounters a funeral of a, of a woman called Mrs. Robinson, who apparently was the favourite of old, old Cobbett. I don't know if you know about Mrs. Robinson, anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> most clear, I think, is an image of the last remaining piece of common land, he says, which he sees scattered with corpses of animals which have been poached by poachers. He says ominously, it's the fault of the government that, um, that has brought them to this. So all these dead animals that poachers have poached are kind of scattered across common land. And this is a sign of the, the, the old world and how dire it is. And in sharp contrast to this is the landscape of Wheeler's so-called new world, the glorious heralding of the future, his words, that he sees in the new Chartist villages. Not only does the landscape change, but so too does his style of writing. Here he very conspicuously adopts the idiom of an emigrant's pamphlet, as though describing a colony abroad and encouraging people to come. A new era has dawned, he writes enthusiastically. A mighty enchanter has waved his wand. 
Here, everything is better, funnily enough. The pigs are fatter, gardens flower more profusely. There are, more, there are people rather than empty spaces of the old world. They have sufficient food so they don't need to poach. And they perform unalienated labour and live in homes that are more elegant and spacious. Uh, there's a, 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 a drawing of Charterville, so you can see. It's kind of in the idiom of this, I think. Uh, rather than an environment encrusted in the past, here the very landscape bespeaks the future. This is an experimental landscape of invention and enterprise, people trying out new ideas for living. The energy and enthusiasm for change is palpable. The future is under construction and on a huge scale. So he writes, I had formed some idea from uh, Mr. O'Connor's letters of the gigantic operations now carried on for the purposes of the society. But the reality was far greater than the anticipation. Miles of roads are being formed where none were known before. Quarries for building materials are being successfully mined where none dreamed of their existence. Lime kilns are in full operation. 80 houses are erected. You can scarcely conceive the ground these stand on, or the distances from the first task to the last, or the immense labour necessary in preparing footpaths to the same. On one side, the houses are built in the form of a crescent, with the school, a magnificent building in the centre, and so on. I think that that image um, kind of gets it. This is an um, uh, enchanted even a sublime landscape in which the new opportunities for development, their gigantic size and abundance, are a source of wonder. The undreamt of quarries, the immensity of labour, the magnificence of the building. The articles were intended to advertise the Chartist villages and encourage further investment in the scheme, all very necessary as the company was already struggling at this point. And I, I think that what I, what I think is that it draws on the uh, kind of idiom of emigration pamphlets. So, um, and you can see it visually, I think, here. So here's a poster for O'Connorville, um, which I think is um, a very nice example. So you, you can see in the middle the, the beautiful idyllic scene, and then underneath the plan of the estate, the plots, how big the plots are, designs of different, um, different houses and the different buildings and so on. Um, here is a poster for an emigration company. It's a, not a very nice photo, I'm afraid. Um, but you can see that the layout is very similar. Um, the map at the front, and there are all sorts of insets here too, which give you distance of places, um, a division of the, 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 the land into plots and so on. And they're underneath a description of the kinds of plots that you could, that you could buy. So I think that there's a lot of um, borrowing between these two, um, these two styles. Uh, here's O'Connorville again because it's so pretty. Um, the style of writing that uh, Wheeler um, uses, I think, he borrows also from emigration prospectuses and it provides the perfect medium in which to advertise the Chartist colony. It gives him an idiom in which to describe a place designed for the future. In addition, it provides him with a way of resolving what we might call, following um, Jonathan Sachs, the scalar confusion of the land plan, this mixture of big and small, of vast ambition and tiny plots of land, and the practical difficulties of managing infinitesimal, minuscule amounts of money, all of which had brought the scheme to its knees. In his depictions of the Chartist colonies, then, Wheeler borrows from emigration pamphlets the device of evoking vastness while calibrating it for the individual users, making it somehow manageable, purchasable, if you like, and also inhabitable. So I'm going to move on now and talk about Sunshine and Shadow. So one year later, um, after he did those sort of Cobbett-like tours of the countryside, um, one year later, the Northern Star serialised Wheeler's Sunshine and Shadow, a tale of the 19th century. It was dedicated to Fergus O'Connor, and each of the episodes was emblazoned with um, Wheeler's political affiliations, late secretary to the National Charter Association and also to the National Land Company. By including the term tale in the subtitle, it's possible that Wheeler made reference to Elizabeth Gaskell's novel on a Chartist theme, Mary Barton, A Tale of Manchester Life, which had been published in Oct uh, October of the previous year. 
Gaskell's novel had sparked a debate within the literary reviews about the appropriateness of its subject matter, that's to say its sympathetic treatment of working class poverty. But this was a middle class debate, and in the dedication of Sunshine and Shadow, Wheeler writes pointedly that, quote, the fiction department of literature has hitherto been neglected by the scribes of our body, and the opponents of our principles have been allowed to wield the power of imagination over the youth of our party, without any effort on our part to occupy this wide and fruitful plain. So the novel sets out with the purpose of not itself occupying this wide and fruitful plain, as he puts it, um, the imaginations of the young, the working class young, but rather, more modestly, it wants to stimulate others so that the many talented minds acknowledging our tenets would achieve that supremacy in the novel which Thomas Cooper has done in the epic. So Wheeler announces a double project that's both literary and political to turn the novel into a genre of political efficacy that has the same potency as poetry and also to, quote, wield power of imagination over youthful minds. Now, whether or not Wheeler achieves these ambitions for the novel is difficult to judge. There are few records of contemporary readers and their responses. What one can say, however, is that his objective to occupy youthful imaginations has an impact on the form and structure of the novel, and understanding this illuminates the way in which Wheeler's novel departs from the bourgeois novel. Part of the purpose of the novel is to tell a history of Chartism from a Chartist rather than a middle-class point of view, as Gaskell had done. It also provides a Chartist interpretation of the decade, detailing the economic and political forces that have worked against working-class people and proffering agitation for political rights in the form of the People's Charter as the only solution. As his protagonist says at one stage, history is, quote, one red record of misery and crime wherever man's rights have been kept in abeyance. The novel is infused with this analysis throughout, in passages of direct doctrine, in its reports of political speeches, in lengthy extracts of poetry that head each chapter, and above all, in the very structure of the novel, the construction of its plot, of character, and not least, I think, in its spatial imaginary. So Sunshine and Shadow is based around a series of episodes in the life of its protagonist, Arthur Morton, from his leaving school in Stoke Newington in 1831 <laughs> to exile in Italy in 1849. Arthur shares with his author, Wheeler, a kind of rootlessness. Both shift from one place to another, one set of circumstances to another, one occupation to another. On leaving school, Wheeler, the author that is, is woolcomber, haberdasher, gardener, baker, and eventually teacher, chartist activist, secretary of the land plan, writer, and journalist. Similarly, his character, Arthur, changes his occupation to suit his circumstances. While Wheeler's own experience and achievement were perhaps exceptional, nevertheless, the instability of his life, his changing occupations and peripatetic livelihood were typical of many working class lives in this period, made unstable by the changing nature of work under industrialization. Indeed, part of the purpose of the land plan was to counter that very instability, recognizing that how one occupied one's time was highly political. In Sunshine and Shadow, Wheeler makes his protagonist's unstable social position a structural principle of the narrative. Arthur Morton, an orphan with no family home, is also an itinerant. He passes from job to job and place to place. But in the novel, each change to which he is subject provides a new set of circumstances which shapes his experience and diverts the narrative. While the direction of his moves often seems unplanned and weakly motivated, when he arrives in a new place, the new context always proves decisive in changing his course. We get a sense of this from following the narrative through the opening sections of the novel. An apprentice to a printer in a small town 30 miles south of London for seven years, which is the most stable period of his life, Arthur first becomes aware of the injustices in society and the failure of the political class to address them through reading the newspaper that he's printing. The apprenticeship ends, so he moves to London, where rejected by his uncle and unable to find work, he's thrown into destitution, so he moves again. When he arrives in the mighty emporium of iron and steel, steel, his words, 
that is Birmingham, the place where Chartism originated, he finds a hotbed of lively political minds and activists. In this new place, Arthur gains a political education that provides a framework for him in which to understand his visceral experience of inequality and injustice. A study of the principles of Chartism, Wheeler writes, gave form, proportion and colour to the shadow of his imagination and arrayed it in the garb of right reason and justice. It is 1839, and now fully embedded in the Chartist movement, Arthur is moved to speak for the first time at the Chartist Convention in Birmingham. His oratory, derived from his personal experience, is inspirational and it stirs the crowd to the action. Now, this is the plot summary, by the way, so in case you think I've gone slightly mad. So he says, the, the hoarded eloquence of an embittered life, um, this is it, the hard experience of hunger and of want had been lavished upon them and all meaner food, food would have been rejected. As riots break out in the Birmingham Bullring, Arthur watches, quote, the pent-up passions of the mass burst forth like volcanoes lava, scattering flames and destruction around them. Falsely accused of arson, Arthur is compelled to move again. He boards a ship in Liverpool bound for America. Chance intercedes yet again. They're shipwrecked and thrown off course. So Arthur goes instead to the West Indies, where he works as a clerk before beginning being once again expelled, and so on. There's no reason to rehearse the entire plot. The point is that there's no moment in the novel in which Arthur is settled, and there cannot be. Rather, the narrative presents a chain of places and contexts and a movement between them that's driven by Arthur's state of being, in a political sense, an outcast or a refugee. In the analysis provided by the novel, it's his lack of political rights as a working-class, propertyless man that's held responsible for this continual movement, the cause of his being forever displaced, forever shunted onwards. We might call this genre, therefore, the political picaresque, a novel formed around the principle of the protagonist's political exclusion. And it's this that underlines the final message of the novel, which is a rousing call to action. He says, the spirit of despotism is still in the ascendant and we still bow beneath its influence, but all hope is not lost. The earth still labors in the pangs of travail and it ere long give birth to a new and better era. The spirit of freedom is again taking wing. Men walk wistfully abroad and hold their breath in the deep ponderings of suspense. These are not the hours to waste in idle dalliance. We must be up and doing, or when the time comes, we shall again be found unprepared. So we can take that message home with us, I think. <laughs> the use of the word suspense here is telling, as it draws together the narrative form, readerly pleasure, and also political activism. The novel cannot end or settle in the present. It can only look forward in suspense to a future present which will be achieved by the activism of its readers. The usual ending projected by the bourgeois novel in which the protagonist's property, family and territory all come together in the final resting place, for example in Mary Barton, where it happens in Canada, this is deflected. Here we have instead a hope for a future settlement yet to be achieved in a place yet to be inhabited. So both the temporality and the territoriality of Wheeler's novel are highly distinctive, not just in its ending, but throughout. While the events of the novel are carefully positioned and dated in historic time, the fabric of the narrative weaves past, present and future tenses together. Even in the very first paragraph, describing Arthur's departure from school, Wheeler oscillates between the past imperfect, as in on a fine day in the year of 1831, at the door of a brick building bearing the lofty title of College House Academy, situated in the subject suburbs of London, stood a stagecoach waiting to convey the emancipated boys to their respected homes in the great metropolis. Um, and, um, and, and beside that, a more generalised, dramatic present tense. He says, crack goes the coachman's whip, and so on. And it ends with a vaguely conceived hope for the future, for the schoolmaster and his wife. He says, peace be with you, ye now ancient pair. May the cares of life fall mildly on you. And though the sunshine of existence is to you forever past, may its shadow be devoid of gloom or danger. 
And then similar is the shift from, the particular, uh, from a particular place, the door of a brick building and so on, into an imagined and undesignated future place for the boys who are dispersing and for the ancient pair, indeed, projecting into the shadows of old age. Such shifts in place and tense, a past located in a particular place, to a more vaguely conceived and located future, are typical of Wheeler's prose, particularly in the many passages of direct political instruction and impassioned writing. A passage or propulsion from a situation of past and present degradation to an unlocated democratic future. It's this temporal and spatial structure that's typical of Wheeler's style throughout the novel, a structure in which we're always projected forward or imaginatively transported from a particular place in time to an unknown and unknowable future space. If the novel's plot is constructed around the movements of its central character, its moral and political domain is made through this kind of imaginative propulsion. From this, everything in the novel derives and distinguishes its representative mode from that of the bourgeois realist novel. Its rhetorical preference for metaphor over metonymy, for instance, a preference for characters as types embracing an entire class rather than a particular idiosyncratic instance. Um, for instance, he says at the beginning that Arthur Morton is a type, a representative of his class, inheriting all their enthusiasm, inspired by all their devotion and partaking of all their errors. And even in its subtitle, A Tale of the 19th Century, which grandly evokes a century which at the time of publication was only half complete. So as the novel reaches out into an unknowable region, there's always a kind of dislocation of the chains of reference, a kind of breaching. For example, his depiction of the voyage to the West Indies turns the natural world into an allegory of capitalist exploitation. He says the cormorant was a picture of the world where the great preyed upon the small. The shark was an emblem of the law. The poor Benito was the victim, driven out of its element. The tree was an emblem of himself, torn from his parent earth by the whirlwind of power and so on. Unlike in bourgeois realism, where nature offers a naturalistic mirror to the social world, here the process of reflection is more extreme and distorting. The represented world is distinct from the signs that depict it. So it's thus within, within this logic that he's able to present the land plan as although flawed in its details, founded on principles which he claims have stood the test of time, out of its timbers, he says, may yet be hewn the vessel which shall ride triumphant into the harbour of success. So the term vessel, I think, is significant. It's a vehicle or a means of transport into the future. He details the problems that the scheme faced, and yet even so, he praises the, the fairy abodes or the houses of the colony for the way in which they provided the context in which inhabitants might imagine their own emancipation. Alongside his account of the failings of the land plan, he describes the ongoing revolutionary activities in Europe, in France, Italy and Hungary. And if the novel projects us anywhere geographically, it's to this new imaginative space across the seas where we go with Arthur at the end of the novel. So when I began thinking about the novel, I thought that given Wheeler's role in the Chartist Land Company, the novel was going to be an imaginative account of inhabiting a small plot of land. Yet the novel is definitely not this, nor is it an anti-emigration novel in any meaningful sense. On the contrary, it presents a story and a mode of representation which are profoundly kinetic, propelling us into an imaginary democratic future in which propulsion or transport is the important thing. What I hope I've shown is the way in which to do this, the novel draws on its surrounding debates about both emigration and agrarianism and borrows from both their languages and styles. And in doing this, doing so, I think the novel transforms the logic of displacement, the people's lack of political representation, the cause of um, chartism itself, into something altogether more hopeful. And he insistently uses spatial metaphors in which to do this. And one of these metaphors is occupation. So in the dedication, he states his purpose to occupy the imagination of the youth of our party. And the term here draws on both its spatial and its temporal meanings. And in this double sense, occupation hovers over the novel in the many places that Arthur occupies or fails to occupy and his shifting occupations. 
And it's also in the language of the, the newspaper, the Northern Star, more generally. So on the 12th of May, beside chapter 6 of the novel, we find this article that reads, The Social Remedies, its title. We have previously demonstrated that there are 20 million of acres of land which belong to the people in the hands of the land robbers. This would be sufficient to supply the surplus population of our towns with sufficient land to occupy their time without resorting to the expedient of emigration. So the image of land to occupy their time is striking and strikingly odd, I think. It reflects the way in which Wheeler's democratic future collapses temporal and spatial categories. Land occupying time evokes a very different relationship between people and land than owning it does, and it suggests a much more transitory relationship, grounded in ongoing and changing practices of work, of production and consumption, I think. So while the term occupation in the mid-19th century has none of the connotations of political protest that it has today, we might begin to trace, I think, a genealogy that would bring, um, bring us, uh, finally, I think, to the Occupy movement in our, in our current day and its commitment to mobility, adaptation and appropriation as forms of protest. And that's my last slide. There we are. From the London Occupy um, protest outside St Paul's Cathedral a few years ago. So I think this is a good place to end uh, this paper. And I'd like to uh, end by thinking about how we might place Wheeler's novel in its ongoing history of radical responses to land, property and ownership. And more particularly, I think, we should think, we should see the novel and its picaresque form as the aesthetic form of the displaced or the migrant subject. It never resolves, um, the, the novel never resolves into property ownership or marriage as does the bourgeois novel. So I was sort of comparing it in my head with a novel like Jane Eyre, which in many ways is a very radical novel, but does nevertheless end with a kind of marriage and property. The central subject of the novel um, um, is different as well, I think. So he receives a political education um, through the novel, but he doesn't develop psychologically in the way that a character like uh, Jane Eyre does, for instance. So it's not exactly a romance in that um, sense um, either. Instead, I think it provides a vision of a collective future, sketch sketchily imagined as a beautiful possibility that's heard from afar when Arthur hears in Italy at the end of the novel the distant strain of the quote, the melody of freedom breathing among the green hills and lovely valleys of his native land. Thank you.